0: You open up your-
1: All right, so we're back in Mark chapter 11 today, picking up kind of where we left off last week. This is the curse of getting old, right? Multiple glasses for multiple, multiple <laughs> projects. Man, when did that happen? It's what I hear, it's all downhill from here, right? Mark chapter 11, the triumphal entry, it's called, in most of our Bibles, It is the beginning, uh, appropriately so. Last night at sundown, uh, actually began uh, the celebration of Passover week for our Jewish friends. And uh, that's what's occurring here at uh, the beginning of the triumphal entry when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of that very same week, which will lead up to the events as we describe them of Holy Week the triumphal entry, uh, the recording of Jesus'. Uh, being uh, anointed uh, by uh, a woman in the home of Mary and or sorry Martha and uh, Mary and Lazarus, and then uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, Judas making his plans to betray uh, Jesus to the chief priest and the scribes and the Pharisees, and then him being taken. Uh, into uh, their care their care their custody and tried before pilate um, visited to herod uh, before the people and of course in between there is is the event that we will speak about and celebrate on thursday the passover meal which for us as uh, new covenant christians becomes something that the scripture describes as the lord's supper uh, this time together of remembering the breaking of the body of jesus the shedding of his blood and then, of course, next week, celebrating his glorious, victorious resurrection. It all comes to a pinnacle right here, beginning in this moment of the triumphal entry. And um, it, it's a great story. There's a couple of things I want to pull out of it here this morning that hopefully will be uh, meaningful to you. But in the context of kind of the music that we've heard this morning, uh, the, the theme of, of much of the, the songs this morning was, as I prayed, that we're never alone. We're never without him. And the foundation of that is laid through all of Scripture, and it continues to run in a thread through this this time of what we call Holy Week because even as we see today, we'll see some of the elements of what happens on this particular day as Jesus has been teaching, as the people come and gather around him in the streets of Jerusalem and then we'll, we'll touch on the fickleness of that day as it relates to the, to the rest of the week. There's a, we enjoy this luxury of knowing the full story now, but maybe sometimes forgetting that the people of the day, particularly the disciples, didn't know the full story yet. This was unfolding in real time. And so uh, there's an element here in the story of their hopes for what they think is going to happen, not only the disciples, but the people. Uh, and in fact, one of the, one of the books, uh, this event, by the way, The Triumphal entry is one of the events that's recorded in all four Gospels in some fashion. And some of them have some different details that are interesting to note if you want to go and look at those and compare them to how the, the book of Mark tells this story. And uh, as we've mentioned before, of the four Gospels... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the two that bookend those in our Bibles, Matthew and John, are the only two that we understand to be written specifically by the hand of disciples who were there among the 12. The other two, Mark and Luke, they were not part of the 12 disciples. We understand that Luke was very close to the disciples, written by a man named Luke. He identifies himself in the writing of the book. But then scholars also come to understand and believe that the book of Mark is really Peter's oral account being recorded by John Mark. And uh, and we see the different aspects of those stories through those who told these to the writers and those who wrote them down. But um, the the through line here is, that as the disciples through all of this time have, have watched everything that Jesus has done, they've experienced his teaching, they've, they've understood his personality, they've seen the miracles that he's performed, there's a hope that rises on this day that, that to everyone's observance looks like everything that they've hoped for and wished for is going to finally come to pass. And the fundamental problem is that everything that they've hoped and wished for and think is going to come to pass is not at all what's going to happen. And so at the end of this week, before resurrection morning finally arrives, and then for some of them, even before Jesus physically returns to them and reveals himself to them in the flesh and for one in particular even allows him to touch the flesh of Jesus. He says, I'm not even, I can't believe these stories you guys are telling me, and I won't believe it until I can see him with my own eyes and put my own hands on him. Until that happens, there is, I would expect, as we would experience in that environment, a great sense that he is no longer with them. That that idea that I've spoken about this morning, that this song that Chris just sang, that he's our hope and that he is always with us in this moment that occurs immediately after the events of today in this story, all of that is shattered for those who are the disciples of Jesus Christ until the morning of the resurrection and the tomb is open and the tomb is empty. And this is why we say here often that uh, there are, in fact, in Jesus' time, among the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, one of the differences was one of those groups didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection for anybody ever. But it's one of the reasons why we talk here about, when we talk about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not only the life of Jesus, it is not only the miracles of jesus it is not only the teachings of jesus it is not only the sacrifice and death of jesus on the cross and it is not only the resurrection however if you take all of the life of jesus all of the teachings of jesus the miracles of jesus and his crucifixion his sacrifice and if you stop there which some traditions tend to really gravitate there and stop you have a great story You have a beautiful story of sacrifice for fellow man and noble purposes and noble causes. But if Jesus doesn't conquer death, the gospel has no power because his ultimate promise was one, that he would always be with us, and if he's dead and gone, he can't be with us, and two, that we would always be with him because he would rescue us from the penalty of sin and death. And only one who could prove themselves able to conquer death could ever have the power to rescue you and I from death. And so that's why this becomes such a a critical, pivotal point in the life of a Christian leading up to Resurrection Sunday and understanding the importance of the resurrection because truly The ultimate proof of the power of God invested in the person of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. All right, so let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now, there are actually several little gems of interest within this little passage that I just read that I want to point out to you, and I hope that they'll be interesting to you. Um, One of those is we just note here that uh, we actually... And we'll actually do this on, on Friday as part of the theatrical presentation. We talk about him entering the gates of Jerusalem. We don't actually know exactly. We know he entered into Jerusalem. What we don't know is where this cult came from. It tells us that he was near the village of Bethany. He was near the bil- village of Bethphage. But he just says, this place we're coming up to, go into that place. Now, if you go and look at a couple of the other Gospels, you'll find... In fact, I think it's, um, I think it's Luke... Is the only one that mentions that there was both a donkey and a colt that they went and they found. So that um, part of this is uh, sometimes people say, "Well, see, that's an that's an error because this one says one thing and this one says another." But we've talked about this before. Sometimes when you have multiple witnesses to the same account, they remember certain specific details. Uh, what's important here is actually something that refers back to Zechariah chapter 9. If you want to go there with me real quick. Zechariah chapter 9. If I can find it in my little deal little here. <laughs> I think Luke records the, the donkey and the colt I believe it's Matthew who actually says this is, this is a fulfillment of prophecy and actually quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. So if you go with me to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Then he continues to go on there. But there's several things in here. So first, you notice clearly, behold, your salvation is coming, right? He's going to come on the the back of a donkey, but not just any donkey, a, a baby donkey, a foal, who has never been ridden. All right, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the other things that the prophet says here is that that same one is going to bring, he's going to cut off war, and he's going to bring peace, and he's going to set captives free from their captivity. Now think about some of the other ways that Jesus is referred to in scripture. Remember the, the herald of the angels when he was born. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. For unto us this day is born in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And he shall bring peace to all nations. Uh, book of Isaiah. King of kings. Prince of Peace. So we see this echoed here in the prophecy of of Zechariah. And then he also talks about the blood of my covenant. When we talk about the new covenant that Jesus establishes when he speaks to the disciples at the Lord's Supper, what does he say? He said, my blood, this is a new covenant that I make with you. And it's the covenant of his shed blood and his broken body. So all of this is referred to in this passage from Zechariah. So I just wanted you to see that because I think it's interesting to know that these things that are happening in the book of Mark and recorded in the other Gospels, these are fulfillments of prophecy from a number of different places, but Zechariah is one of those. All right, so he says, go in, you'll find this colt tied up, Take it, and if anybody bugs you, if anybody asks you, just tell them that the Lord has need of it and will bring it back. Now, just think about that. You can think about it in modern terms. Try to put yourself in that ancient mindset. Even uh, think about, like, (laughs) this reminds me of a horse story, which I'll tell you here in just a second. Um, You know, the Wild West. Think of the Wild West. What was the penalty for stealing a horse? Right? You hang them. Uh, there's a song Christopher and I love to listen to called Shades of Grey um, talking about a cow theft that goes bad. Um, even today, though, you know, like in places like Texas and Montana, you know, if you're stealing people's cattle, it's serious business. And I suspect that even in Jesus' day, To just walk up to someone's home or property or land where they have a valuable asset, asset, get it, Um, a valuable asset like a donkey or a foal of a donkey tied up, and just walk up and start taking it, this seems sketchy to me. But this is the instruction that Jesus gives. And he says, tell them that the Lord needs it. And then here's what unfolds in verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, which was, the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. There are several supernatural things happening here. One is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, like we talked about from Zachariah. The second is, Jesus knows somehow as they're walking from city to city, from town to town, from village to village, that in that village there's going to be a foal, not just any donkey, but a young donkey tied up outside somebody's house, and that's the one that he's going to use. And so he tells them before they ever get there, this shows to us the... the, the, the the depreciance, the, the foretelling ability that Jesus had, this knowledge that he had about the events that were going to unfold, that he was able to instruct them that this is what's going to occur, you're going to walk into that place and this is what you're going to find, and if someone challenges you, if you say these things to them, the Spirit of God will move in them in such a way that they'll be like, sure, take my full, no problem. And then it happens that way. It happens that way. Something else that is fairly supernatural that happens here, but demonstrates, remember that Jesus is the creative force described in the Bible, right? We understand this back in the book of Genesis. I know if you've been with us for a long time, I'm sorry if you're bored hearing this, but it's, it's so critical to all of these stories. In the beginning, God said, Let there be light. That voice was the voice of Jesus Christ himself. All three personalities of, of the Trinity preexistent forever, and yet one triune God. The book of John, the gospel of John, tells us in the beginning that the one who created, through him all things were made that were made, and without him nothing was made, that that was Jesus, the living Physical word of God. And in something that seems so simple on the page right here, we get a picture of his still supremacy over the creation. Because what is special about this foal? No one has ever been on its back before. Now, have you ever tried to sit on the back of an animal? that has never had someone sit on their back before? I mean, you've seen the TV shows, right? We're back to the old west. Bustin' Bronx, horses, colts, foals. We we were watching some rodeo bull riding with my dad and Bonnie while we were down in Arizona because that's what old people do, I guess. Anyone? Anyone? Um, It was fun. I mean, it's crazy. You know, these 1,600-pound bulls that don't want somebody on their back. Karen and I went horse riding once <laughs> out in the valley. Um, she had had some experience with horses when she was young, and I would had some experience with horses when I was young. This is when we were dating, which we were still young, but, you know, not as young. And uh, do you remember your horse's name? Nope, nope but, but we remember my horse's name. <laughs> it was Buck. It should have been a clue, right? Why do you name a horse Buck? Huh, think about that. So we went to this lovely farm in Palmer, and uh, the, the farmer's daughter came out and got us all set up with the horses and, and, you know, gave us some instructions. It was not a guided ride. She had said, uh, it was right above the Matanuska River there, that, you know, she'd sent us out across the, the field and, and they would know where to go, and they did. We jumped on their backs, and off we went, and it was lovely, little walk across the field and out through the fence and down through the trees, and then we started down kind of on this old, probably logging road that, that heads down to the river, and Karen's horse was doing great, and Buck was doing great, and then we got to this spot, and Buck just stopped. Whoa, I'm breaking stuff. Buck just stopped. Did I break it? No. Okay. And uh, he didn't want to go any further. And I, you know, I tried using my skills, my, you know, squeezing with my knees and pushing him with a knee one way and pulling a little bit on the reins and got down off the horse and, and stroked his nose and talked real sweet to him and tried to get him to walk and he, he just was not going anywhere. So then I climbed back up and then I started, well, I'm fine, horse gave him a couple of kicks, you know, come on, hur, hur. and her, her, she's down the trail, and her horse is standing there going like, are we going, or what are we doing, and, uh, oh, did, did I, I fall completely off, where am I, wow, oh, there it is, hey, you want to mute that for a second, all right, wow, I just broke the whole thing off, all right, I'm just going to hang it right there, see how that works, all right, so, I cannot get him to move, we're really having a bit of an argument, although it's a silent argument on his part. He's just standing there. And I gave, him, I gave him another little, and I wasn't kicking him hard. I was just kind of like, come on, you know, didn't have spurs or anything. And I gave him another little kick and I could just feel him tense. And I thought, oh, okay, wait a minute. Um, he's a lot bigger than I am. And this could go really badly. And I decided at that point that I needed to stop trying to make him go where I wanted him to go because he was not going to go. I think he was ready to fulfill his name, Buck. And I wasn't interested in that. So Karen rode back. And when she got close to me like this, going this direction, Buck decided, oh, that means we're going back to the barn. And he just turned around and started going back. And the closer we got to the barn, the faster he went. I don't know if he was hungry, I don't know if he would missed a snack, or if he, when he gets back to the barn, he gets a real good attaboy, and he was very excited, but man, we were pretty well out of control by the time we came back through the fence into the the field there to the barn, and he could see the barn. We were at pretty well a flat-out gallop, which I had never done in my life. I'd never galloped on a horse. It was terrifying. And that was a horse who'd been trained to let somebody sit on their back and ride around on them. And yet here Jesus goes into this colt, this foal of a donkey, and he gets up on its back, and it's totally fine with that. Now notice that it wasn't because Maybe somebody had worked with this fold. That was the requirement. You're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And so we see another aspect of Jesus' divinity, his supremacy over creation in this seemingly simple act. So they find the colt. They bring it. Now, one of the other gospels records this same story right here, the same part of the story. And it says that the crowd that was following him was enormous. And it referred to all of those as his disciples. So, not just the 12 disciples, but many now who had spent time over the last several weeks following Jesus throughout the countryside, listening to his teaching, seeing the works of his miracles. Understanding more of who he said he was, and they followed him to this place where he enters in to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not going to go to them today, you can go look them up later if you'd like to, but this, this thing of throwing cloaks on the ground, putting palm branches down on the ground, these are also things that are referred to not only in some prophecies, but we find them uh, shadows of them, little echoes of them in some of the stories of the Old Testament where these same things were, were done to, to indicate that the person who was walking, the person who was entering, the person who was moving was royalty, that they were special, so that their feet didn't touch the dirt, but they instead walked on palm fronds and branches and the cloaks of those who followed them or respected them or revered them. And so think of this atmosphere as Jesus is entering. He's riding on this foal. The people are shouting. They're singing. They're they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of, of David. What does all of that mean? And why does it all come apart four or five days later? And the same crowds of Jerusalem are standing in the court of Pilate, shouting, Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. The word Hosanna means save us. What is the other thing they say? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Save us from the highest place of authority. And this was the fundamental problem of many of those who followed Jesus in his day including some of the disciples, probably the one in whom it shows up the most is Judas Iscariot. They believed in Jesus. They believed in his power. They believed in the things that he did. They understood many of his teachings, but they were convinced that Jesus was going to be a political savior because remember at this time the jewish people are still under the heel of roman rule they're literally slaves to roman society they're they're the lowest strata of the people in the society in their own countries they're subjects of a king, of, a, of an emperor back in Rome and then other little sub-emperors and leaders all over the place who can do whatever they want and make taxes however they want and, and rules and laws, whatever they want, and they're not their own self-determined people. And this has gone on now for generations for them. And they're just sure that finally... The kingdom of David, a return to a king of Israel who is going to sit on the throne and lead the people from the temple in Jerusalem has finally come to pass, and Jesus is going to be the one to do that. And they are excited. They are thrilled about that. All of their expectations are coming true, it seems, as Jesus rides into the city like a a humble man seated on a foal, but one who's going to come and topple the government and rescue them from their slavery to a political system. And what we know, it is in the course of just really a few short hours what will be revealed is that Jesus' mission was not anything to do with politics or governmental structures in the way that we might think of them or that the people of the day thought of them. And In fact, what happens is there's, the people become so disillusioned because Jesus is not only overthrown, he's arrested, and when he's arrested, he makes no defense. He doesn't even try to get himself released. He doesn't even make an argument before Pilate or Herod. I ask him, people say that you're a king. Are you really a king? Jesus says, you said it, not me. And this is why the people's nature changes and turns against Jesus unknowing that when they do, they're actually fulfilling the plan that God had all along, which was for Jesus to be rejected so that he would be sacrificed to pay the penalty for all of our sins, for all the sins of those who came behind us and all the sins of those who come after us, to be the salvation for all humanity who would receive his gift. We go back to Isaiah, it says that he was despised and rejected by men. See, he had to be rejected before he could be our salvation. This is why scriptures say that even while we were still sinners, Christ chose to die for us. We have the the enviable position to see this in retrospect, to not live it out in real time, I can't imagine the way that the disciples and the followers of Jesus felt crushed and disillusioned by the events then that transpired after this day. It's such, a, it's such a big mountaintop. It's so high. It's so great. It's so real. This is really happening. And then, oh, it just all crumbles to the ground. Jesus speaks of this. He says, my body will be like the temple. It'll be, it'll be destroyed and then rise again in three days. This is the beginning of the destruction of the temple in the minds of the people. We, en- we enjoy the, the perspective of seeing it in its whole after it's occurred. And yet I'm still struck by the idea that we still, at times, are the ones who do the rejecting. We get to see the whole story. We get, we get to see the truth of it. We, we don't have to be disillusioned by the things that happened to Jesus. We can see the promise in its fullness displayed to us as he, as he measures through the punishment and the abuse and the sacrifice and then rises victoriously to conquer sin and the grave. And so what I leave you with this morning is this thought to contemplate in your own life. I can't answer for you, you can't answer for me. You have to just answer for your own life. If we were to transport this environment to us today, Jesus entering, being excited, being thrilled about his his arrival, his presence, his promise, what is it that we think he's going to do in our lives, in our world And do our expectations actually reflect what God tells us in his word that he wants to do with us? Which is to redeem us, which means to to give us back our value that sin has stolen. To transform us instead of being angry, we're loving. Instead of being cruel, we're, we're kind. Instead of being rash, we're patient. All of those things that, that are listed as fruit of the spirit of God living within us, he wants to transform us into. It is, he wants to, to take us from being self-serving to serving one another. And so, as you enter into this Holy Week, looking forward to the beauty of that resurrection celebration, celebrating the, the exclamation point on the gospel that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to challenge you to spend some time this week thinking about your expectations of the work of God as he's entered into your life and do your expectations reflect what he tells us in his word through the example of Jesus Christ and through through much scripture and writing after the resurrection of Christ instructing us about living the Christian life are we actually reflecting that or are we disappointed with the way Jesus has turned out. And if we find ourselves in that place, I'm going to ask you and ask me to seek the face of God to do a miraculous work in my spirit to begin that transformation in me that will turn me towards being thankful and praiseful of the work he intends to do, not the work I wish he would do, and to bless him for that. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go this morning, I want to remind you of the Clare House sign-up out here on the board. If you're here in the house, you can email Pastor Jason at C3AK.com if you'd like to sign up uh, digitally. And then don't forget, go and register. If you're going to come in person to uh, Maundy Thursday celebration at Rabbit Creek, Good Friday celebration here. Um, both of those, by the way, will still be uh encouraging masks there at the rabbit creek uh people will be seated in uh family groups and and bubble groups Uh, they'll have to tell that because at the tables will be elements for the lord's supper and things like that but you'll be sharing those with people that you're comfortable doing that with so make sure and and be mindful of that when you come on thursday but uh, still taking those precautions and then here uh, we're uh, encouraging uh, masks still here for this event uh, here so just so you know that And then, of course, they will be available for live streaming as well online. All right, folks, I love you. It's been great to be with you this morning. Thank you, tech team, as always. A wonderful job back there. I know you're doing hard work. And worship team, always a pleasure to be with you. Good to see some other new faces this morning. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you before you get out of here this morning. God bless you. Have a great week.